we can provide a foundation for the science, but then people can start to critically think about what they're reading and, and think about the sources that they're coming from. It is really difficult to sift through the, the correct information and the incorrect information. And I mean, even in science, this is not even talking about non-scientists, right? There's been so many papers that have been published in the scientific literature focused on COVID-19, and sometimes the data is wrong, but that's how science works. I mean, sometimes it's, sometimes it's wrong because somebody did something unethical, but other times it's wrong because that was the data that they collected. And then that becomes, that becomes a launching point for news and media to pick up those articles and say, look, look, look how bad this is. Or, and there's something about how that experiment was run that leads to misinterpretation of the data, right? But that's how the scientific process is supposed to work. So I think you know, critical thinking and also understanding the scientific process is critical to teach people early on. But I think it's also important to continue having those lessons throughout life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Independent Life Podcast, our first three-peat. First time we've had a guest on three times outside of our own Jane Johnson, Dr. Vincent Vendito. Dr. V, as I began affectionately calling him on this episode. Yeah, he couldn't come in at a better time. He seems to have that timeliness with us to talk about the COVID pandemic, vaccinations, communicating science, and being able to really understand where we are in this pandemic, zooming out and kind of seeing what's been behind us, what we're going through now and what's ahead of us and how to best position ourselves for it is what this conversation is all about. And I just want to, once again, just thank him for, for coming on. If you haven't heard from him before, he's an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacological Sciences. You know, his expertise is in developing vaccines and vaccination strategies, and he's got a background in immunology. And so is just quite the expert when it comes to the science, but also He's just a great spokesperson for science. And to have the complete package, it's rare. And so we're just super fortunate to have him as our first three-peat on The Independent Life. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. It's very important, very timely, very relevant. Enjoy. All right, we have our own Dr. V, Dr. Vincent Vendetto. Um, you know, I was thinking today, I don't think we've had a three-peat on the show. Oh, really? Yeah, I think you're yeah. our first three-peat. <laughs> yeah, we have our own like resident Jane Johnson, but I think she's pretty much part of the staff here, you know, uh, because uh, she's part of the Independent Living Network. But we haven't had a full-on, legit three-peat guest. You're our first. Congratulations. Wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> well, it's an honor. <laughs> It's an honor for us. So maybe give a quick little background on who you are, what your expertise in, uh, in case we have any first time listeners that need uh, a little bit of background in order to understand why you are an expert in this area. Sure. Yeah. So I'm an assistant professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky. My training is started out in chemistry, but then I switched over to immunology and vaccine design. And that's really where I was invited to the podcast to talk about COVID vaccines and the pandemic in general and 
I've been following it pretty closely <laughs> since it started. Oh, was that <laughs> <laughs> two years ago? <laughs> so right. long ago. It's, it's a time yeah. warp. Yeah. yeah, no, it's like, yeah, what day of the week it is? It's Blur's Day. It's right. Together. <laughs> yeah. Let's get your take on where we've been, where we are, and where you think we're heading. You know, you can zoom in, zoom out, wherever you, which way you would want to be, but take us through what you, you have, see to be the, the, the picture. Yeah. Geez. So I feel like we've been through <laughs> cycle after cycle after cycle. Um, yeah. I, I think the first time I was here was maybe, was that in uh, uh, a year ago? And then, uh, yeah, so it, yep, was, it was January. Yeah, yeah. January. Was it January of 2020? 2020, yeah. yeah. Or I guess it was, was it January 2021? Wait, no, January 21. 21 Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> time warp. And then I think uh, in July, and each time I came, I talked about the vaccines being uh, released and then the current status of the pandemic. And, you know, right now we're sitting here with Omicron and uh, a ton of people getting infected. Luckily, we're coming down from that. The, the highest spike from Omicron. There's other variants that the World Health Organization and scientists are watching pretty closely, uh, very similar to Omicron, but it looks like also pretty transmissible as well. But, you know, we have vaccines that are really effective. And that to me is, I think, the best way out of the pandemic and getting back to normal. And I know most people are thinking, aren't we back to normal already? And I think in some places in the country, I think we we probably are, even though maybe we should be a little bit more cautious. But yeah, um, we're in Florida. Yeah, yep, we're one yep. of them. <laughs> <laughs> what what pandemic? Right. Kind exactly. Of like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, talk to me then. Let's go there. Talk to us about the effectiveness, the efficacy of of the COVID vaccine as we know it now. Yeah. So you know when the when the vaccine first came out, it was it was incredible. We saw over ninety percent effectiveness, ninety uh, percent efficacy from the clinical trials, and then it turned out that, that that held true once they started actually immunizing, however many hundreds of millions of people uh, now. So they they appear to be safe and effective. With the new variants that have come out, you know there's been there's been um, recommendations to get that third dose, and as a as a booster, I suspect that that's really going to be considered the standard where people now just get the three doses as a standard immunization track. And it's really that third booster, particularly with Omicron, that the risk of hospitalization goes way down. There's still a significant amount of protection with only two doses. It's that third dose that really, I think, makes it almost uh, a, a people who are infected asymptomatic after that third dose. Unfortunately, there's still a number of people around the country that are unvaccinated, and it looks like the majority of the people in the hospital are really those unvaccinated uh, people. So if you have two doses, you're, you're, you're protected. If you have three doses, you're even better. If you're unvaccinated, I, I hope you don't get infected. But unfortunately, it looks like most people are getting infected now. So what have you come across as the top reasons why people aren't getting the vaccine? Yeah, you know, I get this question a lot. It's a tough question to answer because there really are so many reasons why people don't want to get the vaccine. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's the chip in, sure. you know, there's people say that there's a chip in the in the vaccine, which is not true. People say that it might affect your health, it might affect your heart, it might, you know, there there's so many different reasons and and all of that is is false. But I think you know, there's also a number of people who just aren't sure. There's there's overwhelming uh, mistrust from the medical establishment. And so 
trying to, to communicate with them, they're not using the misinformation. They're, they're basing their decision on just the lack of trust in, in the medical establishment. So it's tough to actually say that there's one major reason or five major reasons. I think there's a lot of people that have their own reasons. And I think I said in the last podcast, I'd like to reach out to everybody and just have a one-on-one communication, which I don't, just don't have enough yeah. time to do that, right? But you know, I, I think it, it's important for people who are, uh, I, I, I think that there, there are people who, who very likely will probably never get this vaccine. There are people who they were ready to get it before it was, you know, while they were still in clinical trials and then ready to get it as soon as it was approved. Right. And then there's all the people in the middle that I think really are trying to figure out what where the appropriate, correct information is. And for those people, I think it's really important to reach out to physicians and pharmacists and talk to them about, you know, their their views and the importance of these vaccines. I think one of the things that I come up against and that I hear about is that the I'll hear from people who are dear friends, very smart, educated, reading, doing a lot of research on this, and they'll come across, you know, someone that has the say the credentials that you may have have published papers in peer-reviewed journals that are cautioning against the vaccine or talking about some of its ineffectiveness or are highlighting alternative type therapies to COVID. They'll say before the COVID vaccine, these were respectable people. Now they're being silenced by the research and academics that, you know, some of this data is being manipulated that is coming out and tampered with. And it's really not the real data that's out there. And so I guess like for me, it's almost like it's saying both sides. So I might say, look at the preponderance of data that's out there. Look at all the Dr. Vincent Vendettas that are out there saying that this is good. And look at his credentials and look at all the peer reviewed and look at all the evidence base. And they're almost saying the same thing, but they're just saying it's a minority of them. You know, there's a conspiracy against, you know, trying to this, that and the other. You got to question the data. So it's almost like both sides are using data and and well-respected people and evidence. And it becomes almost like at that point, well, whatever I feel becomes the default. Like if I felt before vaccines weren't that great, I'm going to feel like I'm going to go trust the the few. If I feel vaccines are good, I'm going to go trust the preponderance. And I feel like at the end of the day, people have evidence on either side to, to make a claim. What do you have to say about that if I'm not being super confusing and conflating a lot? No, yeah. I mean, this is this is really, I think, the the issue that we've had over the, you know, since the vaccines have come out with with misinformation and 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 people use the data <laughs> to argue whatever point they want and and then they say that the that the data is you know made up or whatever there's there's a number of i think ways to that they're using i guess <laughs> trying to just confuse people to to sow doubt and to push people one one direction or another i do think that the most compelling data right now, if you look at the number of people who have been vaccinated, if you look at the number of people who have been vaccinated, there have been so few cases of adverse effects, adverse events reported from that data. And then you look at the number of hospitalizations and death. And if you break that out based on unvaccinated and vaccinated, the number of people who are hospitalized, the number of people who are dying are much higher in the unvaccinated population than the vaccinated. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of discussion about the side effects and people use the VAERS system, this vaccine adverse event reporting system. And they use that as data that's suggesting that, look, people are dying or, or you know, people are getting uh, severe reactions or you know, wh- whatever it may be. And the VAERS system, <laughs> I think is, 
not really being used the way it was in, initially intended to have to, to help track these things. It was never really intended to be used for this mass pandemic. Huh. And the reporting system, while it's, I think, important and useful, anybody can enter their symptoms in there. So it can, it's really an open, <laughs> an open. Oh, it's like open source. Exactly. Kind of. Right. So, wow. so, you know, you, you could feel any type of, you know, dizziness and you say, oh, I'm dizzy, but it could be you're dizzy because you just spun in circles or, you know, or yeah. somebody who dies because they got hit by a bus after a vaccine. Well, they said, well, they were just vaccinated and they died therefore. Right. So there, wow. there are really ways. I did not I, know this. Yeah. Right. It becomes a, um, it's like Wikipedia. You can almost like. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it is a really important system. The problem is that the reporting structure for it kind of lends itself to this misinformation and, and, uh, and helping sure. to promote that misinformation and vaccine hesitancy and all that kind of stuff. And when you really dig into it, the hospitalization and death data between vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals is, I think, the most compelling data that would tell me that, look, I really should be getting this vaccine. And that's true for every age group that the vaccines are approved for. Yeah, it's kind of like we've run this, we're running the experiment now. You got millions that are vaccinated, millions that are not. And if the outcomes are hospitalized and, and not hospitalized, you know, severe symptoms, not severe symptoms, death, not death. It seems like it's a pretty convincing, you know, experimental design if we truly believe the vital statistics that they're based on, right? Right, right. And I guess, um, you know, one of the things also that, uh, you know, I hear that can be compelling in terms of like, well, that's interesting, is some of the um, talk about game theory, you know, that before this happened that, you know, people were already trying to plan out what would happen, you know, if a pandemic does break out and trying to come up with the scenarios, kind of like, I guess, um, if people haven't heard that before, kind of like the old school movie, War Games. You know, so we do these war games, you know, to, so that if it does happen, you know, it can break out. And then you hear about, well, was the, the Wuhan funded with an NIH study to be able to look at this? And all these other kind of things get put out there that get people wondering about the intentionality behind this pandemic. Is this just part of that, those kind of things? And so what do, you, what do you have to say about that kind of line of thinking when people bring up these kind of points about whether or not to get vaccinated or how to think about this pandemic? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that there was, um, I, I remember giving a talk, I think it was in 2018, on there's going to be a pandemic. The importance of vaccination is so, it's so, so you're in on it too. It's so okay. high. We really need to be considering, you know, the potential for an outbreak yeah. and, and the importance of vaccines as we consider the potential outbreaks. Uh -huh. um, you know, I mean, I think as scientists and as just looking at how populations continue to grow and continue to mingle with, with wildlife, it's inevitable that something like this was going to happen. And the need sure. for, for vaccination and the need for all this stuff was, was, I mean, it was inevitable. We, we've had scares, right? I mean, if you think back mm -hmm. to not too many years ago, there was, a, and I think it's still going on, the Ebola outbreak in, in Africa, right? And that was a 2013, maybe, when Ebola outbreak happened in Africa and it started to spread. There was real concern that it was going yeah, to really yeah, spread yeah. around. And luckily it was contained because they had the health measures in place. There are so many other viruses that could potentially break out. I mean, you look back 
SARS, this is SARS-CoV-2, right? There was a SARS-1, yeah, SARS. there was yeah. MERS, also coronaviruses, right? So, yeah. you know, it, it's inevitable that these things are, ha- are going to happen. And we see now with this coronavirus, it continues to, to mutate. It continues to, you know, we went from the original, the founder strain to the alpha variant, the beta variant, right? We're now on Omicron. There's yeah. now this BA2 that's coming up, Omicron BA2, which is another variant that they've identified in several countries now. It's going to continue to mutate. I don't know that we're ever going to really get away from this virus. I think that it's always probably going to be in circulation. And I don't know what vaccine strategies are going to look like moving forward. But if you think about, I think the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife did a survey of deer around the country, and they found that something like 30% of deer were infected with SARS-CoV-2. Wow. And so you, you now have an animal reservoir that's potentially going to transmit back to the back to humans, right? So even if we were able to get rid of it, somebody goes near a deer, it can very easily jump back from deer to, to humans. So, you know, you, you think about that, that data, and we know that there's these animal reservoirs, well, those deer could be infected with anything, right? I mean, they, you Uh know, the the fact that the deer have it, it didn't come from a, (laughs) there's a common thread there with and it's either with humans directly interacting with deer or humans interacting with mice or, uh-huh. you know, that there is, there's, there's a chain. Yeah. We, we live very close to wildlife and the fact that that's happening suggests that that's exactly where it came from initially. And, uh-huh. you know, it's how the next one's going to come out too, potentially with yeah. whatever that virus is, whether it's Marburg or, or Nipah or one of these other that we don't even know about. Right. So, yeah. You know, just, for the record, I think it's good that scientists before, say, a pandemic or if military experts are like planning for what might happen to be doing that and be prepared and game planning these kind of scenarios out where in retrospect, I think it's being used as, see, conspiracy. People were planning this, you know, and, and doing this kind of right. thing and, and not being saying aware of. Well, that's just doing, say, perhaps our due diligence. This is part of scientific method. And, and those kind of things. And I think like here, and I, I'd be interested to get your take on this, I think it comes down to communicating science in many ways. So how do we educate probably first, and then how do we communicate what science is? So thinking about everything that you've learned so far in the pandemic about communicating science, you seem to have a real talent for it. What would you suggest we should do in terms of how we're teaching science? I'm talking like primary school, middle school, and high school, mm-hmm. you know, given what we know now about the pandemic and how misinformation can happen, you know, should we be examining how we teach science in early schooling based on what we're learning now and communicating science? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I, I think the only answer can be yes, <laughs> that we need to approach it potentially differently than, than we have. I think one issue is that a lot of times this this conversation becomes very politicized, right? And you go from different parts of the country certainly have different uh, ideology that lead down one path or another. I do think it's important to start teaching science earlier, but I think, you know, one thing that I think is imperative to be teaching now is critical, critical thinking. And if, if we can teach critical thinking, then 
we can provide a foundation for the science, but then people can start to critically think about what they're reading and, and think about the sources that they're coming from and whether or not it is really difficult to sift through the, the correct information and the incorrect information. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, even in science, this is not even talking about non-scientists, right? There's been so many papers that have been published in the scientific literature focused on COVID-19. And sometimes the data is wrong, but that's how science mm -hmm. works. I mean, sometimes it's sometimes it's wrong because somebody did something unethical, but other times it's wrong because that was the data that they collected. And then that becomes that becomes a launching point for news and media to pick up those articles and say, look, look, look how bad this is. Or and there's something about how that experiment was run that leads to misinterpretation of the data, right? Sure. But that's yeah. that's how the scientific process is supposed to work. So I think you know, critical thinking and also understanding the scientific process is critical yes. to teach people early on. But I think it's also important to continue having those lessons throughout life. There's a program that we started here at the University of Kentucky. It's actually, we started it out of the College of Pharmacy, but it's really a, a citywide program where we have scientific communication, scientific outreach. We go to for a week. It's actually this year, it's February 21st to the 25th. And we go to bars and restaurants and we just talk about the science that's happening around us. The, the festival is called Everything is Science. And so we wow. have people that just come out and talk about whatever it is that they do, whether it's photography or um, sex and relationships or, uh -huh. or the pandemic, right? And we just have um, about 30, 30 people come out and present. And, and to me, that's the type of education that we actually need to actually meet people where they are we don't need to have everybody come into the to the ivory towers to learn science or to take a class. Mm -hmm. I think right. you know doing that stuff in the community actually builds a lot more trust and a lot more wow. uh, trust in science and, and trust in scientists. You know. Love it. I, I, I think that's such a good place to, to connect with people. Everything is science. And uh, I just love it. I'm going to back up just a little bit, though. I, sure. I, I think you're so spot on with teaching critical thinking in, in primary and in secondary and, and in high school. My father always says we got to be teaching students to be skeptics, you know, like, OK, you tell me an atom's real. How do I know? You know, how do, how do I know, like, the, these things that you're teaching me in science class instead of just learn this science, you know, teaching actually the process of, like you were saying, critical thinking, being skeptical of the information, how to ask good questions, how to find out good information about these kind of things, like teaching that as a skill set in tandem with what you were saying earlier. From the way I understand it, science is a method. You know, it's a methodology. And, and I know it's been institutionalized. And so that we could talk about that component of it, but it has become an institution, but necessarily from the rawest form, it's just a, a, it's a way of uh, answering questions. And, and, and like you said, it's not perfect. It can generate information that's incorrect. And, um, and for me, the best communicators of science will say, well, with a degree of certain probability, you know, this is the results that we saw. And that's it. You know, like right. it doesn't necessarily mean this is reality. This is the way it is. 
and speak with such certainty. I feel like sometimes um, a lot of the that's getting lost is when science is being communicated with 100% certainty. Like this is the way it is. And then when things don't turn out to be that way, then the door opens to see, told you they were wrong, hypocrisy, and not speaking like, well, you know, we ran the experiment. We have this degree of probability to say this is, you know, what we saw, but it leads to more questions and it's an ongoing process. <laughs> yeah, exa- I mean, exactly. But if you think about what a scientist is doing, you know, part, so the, the scientific communication to the public is, is critical, but most of the time what we're doing is writing scientific papers and grants trying to get funding for our research and both of those are certainly you want to frame the research appropriately but it part of it is being just a salesperson and trying to yeah. to sell yeah. this to the reviewers right whether it's a paper or a, or for funding <laughs> and so so you want to be certain you want to say that this is how it's working high degree of confidence give me the yeah, money right? give me the money. good point good point right? i kind of think it's true give me some <laughs> high funding nih right yeah 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 and i and i think too you're saying yeah if it gets politicized i think even from a, a pandemic and we want our leaders to be certain and confident mm-hmm. and and all these other kind of things so i think it really tailors itself for that too we don't want uh, a leader up there saying well i kind of think this sort of kind of might work you know go do it right and, and i'm not sure if that's right with us too to be expecting that we should have plato's republic and everything's so very you know specific and, and certain when we live in an uncertain world so part of it is i think the consumer or the funder wanting this high degree of certainty almost pigeonholes those that are like yourself with are wanting to be real, wanting to be authentic and wanting to be trusted. It puts, I think, scientists in a very precarious position. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And, and I think that is really the, the challenge for most scientists and why it is so difficult to communicate your science, because you have to walk that, that balance and know when to be more certain and when to, Uh to pull back. And, you know, if you look throughout the pandemic at, at the scientists who are most prominent throughout the pandemic, so we can use Dr. Fauci as, uh, as an example, he made very assertive statements at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly about masks, right? And it wasn't only mm-hmm. him, right? There, was, there, were, there were many um, science, prominent scientists who said, you know, masks aren't necessary. But yeah, then the that. data changed. And yeah. from that data changing, he then came out and said, well, we should be wearing masks. So now people say he's he was originally lying, right? And what is yeah, the political sure. motivation behind this? But actually, uh-huh. it was just based on the science changing and our understanding of, of what was happening changing. So it, again, it gets back to understanding the scientific process and not criminalizing people, not criminalizing scientists when their certainty shifts because of mm-hmm. new, new data, new, yeah. new, you know, new information. And, and I think that's the, the mindset where people, would, when they think of science, it's almost like when it's communicated, it's law. You know, it's, right. it's not theory even, or it's just not a high degree of probability. We think this is the case. And then when science isn't perfect, people then give that as fodder to say, okay, see, told you this, that, and the other. But again, I think it goes back to educating people that it is to the best of a degree of our knowledge right now and running this experiment and new data is always kind of coming in to paint the picture and have a broader landscape and longitudinally over time, right. you know, things start to come in uh, that we can have a better understanding of where we're at. And I, I think too, I have 
on one hand, I'm really happy to hear more people say evidence-based. On the other, I think it's getting thrown around so much nowadays mm-hmm. in a way that I'm not sure people understand when, they, when they're using evidence-based what it really means. I can speak from the social behavioral sciences. I can't necessarily speak from where you're coming from, the more hard science. But I know when we were wanted to show the efficacy of an intervention, you know, say we're trying to promote physical activity or healthy lifestyles or decrease alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs in a certain population, there were clear standards of when we could, you know, say that this intervention is efficacious and clear standards when we can say it's effective. And these were high criteria, very high criteria, all the way from the instrumentation and the psychometric, you know, work that needs to go into any kind of surveys or any kind of biomedical or you know, statistical analysis of, and then replication um, in different populations. And, and oh my gosh, it was exhausting just reading the standards you know, for efficacy right. <laughs> or effectiveness. Um, but I feel like nowadays, I'm not sure a lot of published science is necessarily met the criteria for evidence based on a lot of the information that's getting reported out. It just happens to be published in a peer reviewed journal article. So therefore it is evidence based. So I don't know if you can walk me through to, uh, you know, maybe that and anything that lands on you as I'm saying this uh, in terms of people being, I think, very free with the word evidence based nowadays. Yeah, I, I think if we take a step out outside of the pandemic and we, we look at how traditional therapeutic interventions are considered for evidence-based medicine and, and the guidelines. So I teach rheumatology. So we teach about rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and, and each of those diseases have specific guidelines. And so what those guidelines are, are true evidence-based medicine. And they will have, they will collect all of the studies for a specific therapeutic and look at what that therapeutic did to that patient population. In general, if it's published in a single paper, it's not considered strong as part of the guidelines. And the reason for that is if you did the study in Florida uh, and you got one result and then you came to Kentucky, you may get a very different result. And that's because of the differences in the population, the differences in whatever. Sometimes we don't even know why. And so typically when we're coming up with therapeutic guidelines or when the when science, I say we, when scientists and, <laughs> and clinicians are coming up with therapeutic guidelines, it's really based on overwhelming data, as you pointed out, that's really from multiple studies. Then you, you collect all of that together and say, look, in all of these different populations, the data is positive. Therefore, this is a positive recommendation that we can give to clinicians for therapeutic interventions. That at that point, you know, it really truly is evidence-based medicine. When it's a single publication, it is possible, like I said before, that sometimes the data can be wrong and we collect more data and then we have to shift how we think about that. And so it really is continuing to collect data from different populations and really figure out what is the the true take-home message. What's the story that all of this data collectively tells us? This is really difficult in a pandemic though, because during a pandemic, you're trying to grab whatever you can to predict what is going to happen and how we can move forward and plan, right? And you have to be constantly planning, right? When, right when Omicron came out in, in November, we were saying, oh no, what's gonna happen? So then you start collecting data from South Africa and you say, well, look at, look at all these people that are being infected. It's clear that the transmission is so much higher. 
But as we collect more data, well, the population that they were originally identified in was slightly different than what the population of the United States looks like. So obviously, those transmission numbers are going to vary based on that population. And, and that's really what, you know, what kind of we're battling throughout the pandemic is really being in front of the data, but then continuing to collect data and then readjusting our, our frame of thought based on all of that collection of data. The longitudinal piece is huge. You know, and like you said, in a, in a pandemic, right. you don't, we don't have that luxury right. you know, of, of having time uh, we got to predict. Another thing I want to get your take on, too, is, is that you know, people are very quick to point out publications in peer-reviewed journals. And so I'll hear that, you know, what did you, you know, hear about this you know, article that was published in a peer reviewed journal? And, you know, they said this, that and the other. Um, and, and I'm not sure, like, there's a, a, a widespread understanding about, well, some journals have a higher impact than other journals. You know, some journals have more of a rigorous peer review process than other journals. And, and I'm not sure like that that's always communicated out to people when, when things are just published in a peer reviewed journal, you can have men's fitness magazine who, you know, hired on an exercise scientist who also has a journalism major and somebody else that's reviewing those articles that get published versus you know, journal of nature, you know, that has like, I, 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 goodness gracious, I can't imagine the peer right. review process, you know, for that right. you know, article. And those are two different ends of the spectrum of perhaps peer review. So how about that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think now people are becoming more astute to peer review, but maybe don't recognize that, you know, some journals have a higher impact factor. What is impact factor? What, what should we be looking at there? Yeah. So, um, and I think a lot of this has uh, obviously come out because of the pandemic. And one thing that really, I think, took off significantly during the pandemic is the bioarchives and these preprint journals. And so I'll, I'll kind of walk through that as well. So typically, when uh, as a scientist, when you write a paper, you do, you do all your experiments, you package it into a paper so that you can submit it to a journal like Nature, as you as you pointed out. Hopefully, your science is strong enough that you can go into Nature. And the reason that Nature is really considered one of the top journals is and Science and Cell. These are the the, the other really top journals in the in in the general scientific field, is because the review that so when you submit your paper to one of those uh, journals it's sent out to experts in the field and those experts then read the paper they figure out what is the uh what are potentially some issues with the paper they're not rerunning all of the experiments but they're providing their feedback and say do this additional experiment to really prove that this is true or to prove that this is true. And this is true across scientific fields and there's all different journals. So, so there's this high level, uh, very high impact, which means that they are, those journals are read a lot, they're cited a lot. It's believed that those papers in those journals are very impactful to the field, to science in general. As you go lower in those impact factors, that same process is happening, but maybe there's not as much data in those papers maybe it's not as um shifting it's not shifting science as as significantly but still very important to have those those papers submitted as well and so in and all of those peer-reviewed processes are basically you submit your manuscript to the journal the journal sends it out to experts those experts provide their feedback and then the authors of that uh manuscript have an opportunity to to update accordingly 
What has happened certainly before the pandemic, but it's really taken off with the pandemic are these preprint journals. And that's where it gets a little fuzzy because you're putting your manuscript, instead of submitting it to a journal, you're putting it on a, in a, a, a preprint server and you're storing all of your data there and the manuscript there. It's not been read by experts, but anybody can comment on the validity of the experiments and the validity of the, the data that's presented in the paper. From there, it will go to a journal and get peer reviewed, but the preprints throughout the pandemic have been used as sometimes peer reviewed data. And that's really an issue, right? Because now you have people that are just putting things onto these preprint servers. Maybe the data is not accurate. Maybe there's issues. It's not been peer reviewed. It's not been reviewed by the experts, but media will pick up on some of those preprint journals and say, look, look at this, look at this amazing data and, and run with it. And I, you know, in general, scientists aren't trying to, aren't trying to mislead the public. Um, occasionally that happens. It's rare. In general, they're not being unethical. They're not trying to mislead the public. Sometimes you set up an experiment and you haven't thought about this. <laughs> we all have blind spots or sorry to, to use the, yeah. the, no, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. You're hilarious. But there's no such thing as the perfect experiment. Right? There's not. And we all have these, yeah. um, you know, things that we can't predict and things that we, that we miss when we're designing an experiment. Yeah. And that's really what, um, what, what the peer review process is for, to help the authors identify what the potential things that they missed in, plan- in designing their experiments. And so it, I find it very useful when I submit papers because the, the reviewers provide comments and they say, hey, you should run this experiment. I thought, oh, I didn't even think about that. That's a great yeah. idea. This yeah. certainly strengthens the paper by running this experiment and proves to helps prove that what we found is actually real. And and I also think that too, like one thing that I think is important, it's not as like attention grabbing, is also, I always wanted like a, a journal of non-significant findings, you right. know, where, <laughs> where, where like science isn't just proving what is, but also what's not, right. or at least the, the data shows what it might not be. And I feel like sometimes with a, the, a blind spot in science is the fact that we want to publish significant findings. You know, that shows significance, that right. shows differences. And, and those don't even submit your journal article if you haven't shown any statistical significance, you know. Right. So I feel like we're sometimes missing a lot of good science that's showing what we believed isn't actually, you know, true. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think there's there's room there for that. All right. So I, I love how we're talking about how science needs to be communicated better, you know, how we can maybe start in early education, teaching people to be critical thinkers and, and to have good, healthy skepticism about the information that they're giving. Understanding science is a method more than, say, an institution, although it's been institutionalized, you know, to, to fund it and everything else like that. What is evidence-based? What's not evidence-based? What's really peer-reviewed journal published science and everything else like that? Um, so I, I really love this part of it. And and so if you, you know, how to communicate it, we do want to have certainty, but at the same time, we got to caution against it. What other um, thoughts or 
do-overs even would you even want to have in terms of you know being able to communicate science or explain what science is to to the public that aren't scientists mm. yeah this is um <laughs> this is such a, a challenging question i i mean there's there's so much that i think we do not do that we should be doing at all all levels um you know, within the pandemic, I think, um, or I, during the pandemic, I think that we knew that vaccines were coming, right? We, we, we put a ton of money into work speed, right? And I don't know that we had the appropriate education uh, leading up to their release. Um, I think uh, we could have very likely anticipated that variants would continue to come and we would continue to see new variants um, uh, arising. And mm -hmm. I don't, I, again, I don't think that we, partially because we didn't really know what was going to happen, yeah. but I think it's, so, you know, you don't want to necessarily get the cart before the horse and start to communicate something that, that isn't necessarily going to happen. But I think putting pieces in place to make sure that you know the the public is prepared to receive the message and i think that that maybe wasn't always done appropriately and there wasn't necessarily a unified effort so when you look from state to state you know i mean you look at what you see what's happening in florida you see what's happening in in kentucky you see what's happening in new york right all three of those states are doing things completely different and yeah, vaccination true. rates are completely different. Even within Kentucky, Lexington, Fayette County in Kentucky, where University of Kentucky is located, our vaccination rates are, are phenomenal. I mean, they could be higher, but but they're really strong. I mean, they're over 70%. It's really a, a, okay. a, a very positive. But there's several counties in the, in the state that are under 30% for it. And, wow. and that really, you know, and that that is a an issue with, how equitable, I guess, vaccine communication is. And certainly where the University of Kentucky is, we can put signs all over campus, we can put signs all over town. Are we reaching out into those communities where they have 30% to really inform them, to, to have them speak to somebody that has a background? Because otherwise, if you don't provide that information, there's an information gap where it can be filled in with anything. And unfortunately, it's getting filled in with misinformation and, sure. you know, the the things that we don't want to be there. So, yeah, yeah, we're similar here. It seems like, you know, the rural counties have a lower vaccination rate, the more populated counties, higher vaccination rates. Political affiliation breaks out a little differently there, too. And uh, yeah, it's interesting how that happens. Now, let me shift gears here then and, and look like zoom out. Let's go big picture on this. Like what kind of mindset should we be having uh, about the COVID pandemic? We're now coming around two years. We're two years in from at least how I, I think I've been impacted. I felt like it was uh, March 13th that, you know, we, we, we closed our center and, you know, a lot of things did the you know, closing down and, and this, that and the other. So we're not far from that marker now. You know, if we were going to zoom out, say, within this year to the next few years and look, I don't think anyone's certain about <laughs> this pandemic and what it is, though. But with, it's, it's, we got a two year sample size on it now. And given your background and everything else like that, if you were going to have to 
to zoom out, what, what kind of mindset should we be preparing ourselves for uh, moving forward related to this pandemic where we're at in it? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I don't, I don't think it's going away. I don't, I think we're going to. This is going to be a um, constantly circulating virus, and we will probably have variants that continue to arise. And particularly, we have vaccine inequity around the world. So we have many parts of of Africa and South America that just don't have access to vaccines. And if we are now considering three doses as a full vaccine dose. I, th- I don't know that anybody in Africa has three doses right now. And so that becomes really problematic for allowing new variants to arise. And the other thing that I brought up earlier was the fact that there's a whole animal reservoir, right, in the deer and, and mice that are potentially going to continue this, you know, cycling through as long as there's an animal reservoir, we're going to be continue to be exposed potentially. So, you know, where we sit right now, it doesn't look like this is ever going to go away. And so that means we have to learn how to live with it. And okay. the way that we live with it is we get vaccinated and, and we basically, as a, as a World Health Organization and as a global scientist, we continue to monitor the, the variants that are coming up. And if we find a variant that seems to be spreading rapidly or causing severe issues, then we have to think about potentially updating our vaccines and potentially getting a, a, an annual booster or whatever that looks like. You know, it's tough to say right now, but it's inevitable that everybody in the world will be infected with this mm-hmm. coronavirus in some way, in some form, in some fashion. We know the data, vaccinated people are staying out of the hospital. Majority are, are out staying out of the hospital. If you're vaccinated, you're unlikely to be hospitalized, unlikely to die. And so it would be better to be infected with this after vaccination than before vaccination. As we go forward, we may need more vaccinations. We may need to change vaccinations, but really finding a way to live with it. I think going forward in the winter, I'm probably always going to be wearing a mask because mm-hmm. you're inside more. You're, you know, certainly if I was in, in a city with a subway, I'd be wearing a mask on the subway. I would be, uh-huh. you know, making sure I'm following all those things. It's, it's going to prevent flu and also all these other, you know, it's going to prevent the coronavirus and flu sure. and, and any other infections that are going around. So, so really it's moving from trying to avoid it to really living with it and figuring out how best we can live with it in the conditions that we have. Well, thank you. I appreciate that honest and sobering appraisal that, you know, it's something that we're going to learn to live with, uh, that inevitably everybody's going to be exposed to it. And, uh, I think that helps with resilience in some ways. So, you know, we got about a two-year sample size. And, yeah, it's almost – I don't know if it maps on seasonality-wise, but it just seems like the surges have happened at similar roughly time points within the year. <laughs> and just to anticipate it, it's to be expected. For me, is a is a healthier mindset than, all right, that, that wave's over. We're good, you know, quote-unquote, back to normal. And then when I'm like, oh – here comes another wave. Oh my gosh, you know, like more, you know, kind of concern. Like to me, that's where the exhaustion and the lack of endurance and resilience happens is, is to be there. So I think this honest appraisal that let's have a mindset that this is going to be something that we're going to live with for a while. Let's be accepting of that and take all the precautions that are necessary to live with it and figure out how to live with it. 
for me as an organization, you know, leading an organization, this is where now I'm trying to figure out how to adapt as an organization. You know, so we got humans, you know, adapting, but also organizationally as an organization, um, we serve a vulnerable population and want to also make sure that we're following the right guidelines and procedures. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, there at the University of Kentucky is an organization and you, know, you got students there and everything else like that. I'm wondering if we also need to have guidelines that are flexible and adaptable enough to go along with the different surges and lower rates of transmission times that adjust to it versus having, you know, a very rigid system where this is the way it's going to be, you know, we're all the way open or we're all the way closed um, and not so flexible. So I'm trying to think dynamically as an organization how we ebb and flow with the different surges that we're likely to expect in the future. What are your thoughts on that? I know you're not probably not a policy guy or, or <laughs> anything else like that, but but uh, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to get your take. No, I, I, I mean, I think if anything, the last year taught us is that we don't need to do work and school the way that we've done it in the past. And actually, it's to the benefit of a lot of people, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that were previously forced to come into an office and that's irrespective of reasons why they couldn't be there for, you know, I yeah. mean, and, and being able to work at home for a year or more, I think, changed the mindset for a number of people. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing a bit of is this push to go back to pre-pandemic and, hey, we're, we're back to normal again. We don't have to worry, right? The pandemic is over, even though it's not really, sure. but, but let's yeah. get back to, yeah, let's forget, let's forget about it. Let's, let's all come back together. And I, and I think we need to find a way to be somewhere in between to allow people, to give people the opportunity to, to work remotely or go to school remotely when, when necessary and to be in person when necessary. Uh -huh. And then also the ability to shift when we see that there are spikes that are happening and allow students and, and you know professionals to make that decision on their own as well, not only from an organizational perspective, but also allow individuals to right. have their own independence yeah. to actually to make that decision. To me, it's the only logical way forward. We've learned so much from the pandemic. Why should we ab abandon these things? And on top of this, I think, the other thing that needs to happen, which is not so much from an organizational perspective, more from a public health and a scientific perspective, we need to have better disease monitoring and outbreak monitoring. And I mean, certainly that would help here. If we had community-based monitoring, we could say, oh, look, this county is having a spike right now. Let's make sure that we have appropriate education and facilities in place where we can make sure that it is contained. Mm -hmm. We've seen that happen in other places around the world during the pandemic. I don't know that the U.S. has done that so well. And I think coupling a community surveillance approach with a malleable and an adaptive uh, business model, I think would help a lot with making sure that we're responding to what's happening in a location and allowing people to make the decisions so that they can live independently and be independent in their, in their decisions. I wholeheartedly agree. I love what you're saying there. You know, being very community monitoring, being flexible and adaptable, be like water. They're like, this thing seems so fluid. Right. And if we can have a system that's not so boxy, cumbersome, and locked in, locked out, and to have that, you know, dynamic, I think that would go a long way. Like you said, as individuals, as organizations, as communities, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I also like what you're saying in terms of 
preparing the mindset for us to, to be in this for a while. And, and I, and for me, I can understand wanting to go back to pre pandemic and, uh, what's quote unquote normal, but I, I almost feel like that's a recipe of thinking that's kind of magical thinking. And at the same time, a recipe for suffering and resisting the reality. I, I think that's where suffering comes is like, the, the reality is, is that we're likely not going to go back. Why? So let's go forwards. Let's think of a new, let's create a new world. Like you're saying, like a, you know, a world that can be more flexible, more adaptable. We have these innovations. We're learning so much. Let's look forward instead of backward. But I can understand the comfort in wanting to return back to a time where things were more predictable. There was more certainty. I certainly can appreciate that. At the same time, trying to bring people along into thinking of a world as a, as a, brave new world and we can write the script you know it's, right. i don't know how to bring people along in that kind of mindset or thinking but maybe that that's fodder for another podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> wow you certainly chose the right career field nowadays in retrospect right, right. you know like to be into it. so i look forward to having you back on you know as things continue on and to learn from you're just so busy and you're in such the right space nowadays to to touch base with you know, I want to again acknowledge you for being such a great communicator of science. I think you're a role model for a lot of the people that are out there that are communicating science and, and do it in a way that's easily digestible. I know within within a pivot of a second, you could be so talking over my head and everyone else's head, but you just bring it down to a very, very, I think an important thing too, is that when we talk about science, we're not, we're not talking down to people and you don't do that. You know, you talk to people. I love that you're going in the community to talk everything is science and meeting them, you know, at a place that's recreational and leisure. I think that's gold. So um, you certainly reinstill in me a lot of, you know, confidence and faith in, in the scientific community and its ability to communicate what it does. Because science does some wonderful things. It does. And, uh, you know, you're a good spokesperson for it, Dr. Vendetta. Well, I appreciate it. You. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And I think you know our sign off by this time. Yes. Onward, Onward and, and upward. upward. Thank you, Dr. V. Thank you. you. Yeah. Man. Pleasure. Ciao. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.